recorded live from Hong Kong and Toronto. Let's go. This is the PR and Law Podcast. The PR and Law Podcast. Turn it up, turn it up. With your hosts, Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to episode 65 of the PR and Law Podcast. I'm your host, Cam McMurchie, along with Ewan Christie. Hello, Cameron. Ewan's an employment lawyer in Toronto, Canada, and I'm a PR guy in Hong Kong. I publish the Digital Bits PR and Communications newsletter at digitalbitspr.com. If you enjoy the podcast, please tell a friend about it. And you can follow us on social media, LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. And you can subscribe to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels as well. Lastly, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. You can do that at prlawpodcast.club. You and, you know, as I record this uh, again, we've just got stormy skies here in Hong Kong. And I I love this time of year, actually, because we're into typhoon season. We haven't had a big typhoon yet, uh, but we're in that season with really heavy winds and and rain that just kind of appear out of nowhere and then disappear 15 minutes later. (laughs) It's funny. I remember living in that part of the world and and just being at such odds with myself because you sort of cheering on the typhoons because, you know, like, oh, it could be a day off work if we get a typhoon day. But then at the same time, you're like, well, it's probably not a good idea if a typhoon, you know, sort of hits the city. That would be a bad thing. Um, yeah. But yeah. But. You know, the crazy thing with that, too, because it's the same in Hong Kong, right? Like a lot of people want the typhoons because they don't go to school, they don't go to work, whatever it might be. You know, and we've got the infrastructure to withstand it. But I mean, there's a lot of countries nearby that that clearly don't, right? Where those typhoons can be a really big deal. So yeah, it's always kind of a kind of a bittersweet thing when when those things happen. But they are interesting to live through. I gotta say, they're they're um they're quite exciting on one level. I, yeah, it's always. I mean, I've never I, I've never experienced a hurricane. Um, I've 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 got to assume sort of the calm before the storm that they talk about Very has true. to be similar, but yep. it, that idea, right. Uh, I, you know, just before a couple hours before it comes in, you get these crystal clear blue skies and nature, yeah. the animals, they're well aware of what's going on and what's coming. And it's just complete silence in these crystal clear blue skies. And then just total, total mayhem. Yeah, it is a really, really eerie experience. Continue the debate with us on social media. Join us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at PR Law Podcast. All one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Send us your questions now by email to askusatprlawpodcast.com. That's all one word, askusatprlawpodcast.com. Or on social media with the hashtag PRLawPod. That's hashtag P-R-L-A-W-P-O-D. So there was quite a bit of news this past week, and we've got a lot of stuff to get into this week. So we want to get right into it. So you and I'll pass it over to you. Yeah. So this was a crazy story, Cam. I don't know if you saw this out of the the Hollywood Reporter uh, on Netflix, who fired three senior marketing executives, which to to sort of put in perspective, is about half of its staff at at that level, um, for criticizing senior executives over the company's Slack network. Um, you know, yes, and the I, I issue, did see this, yep. Yeah, the, so, so, so the issue dealt with the hiring of the chief marketing officer, uh, Bozoma St. John, 
Um, and apparently one of the issues, according to sources, was that uh, the CEO's hiring of Miss St. John circumvented sort of the company's typical interview protocols. And uh, as I understand, some of the senior marketing executives weren't particularly happy about this. So they went to the company's Slack network thinking that these messages were private and started to make some comments, which, you know, uh, according to, to their immediate boss, Jonathan health God, he's the, the VP cam of uh, original films marketing. He apparently didn't want to fire them. Um, and, you know, he even argued that it was sort of important for employees to be able to let off steam, but the pressure from the top, apparently was uh, was too much and and ultimately the company decided to let these executives go. Yeah, there's a lot about this we don't really know yet as you point out. I mean, we don't know what was said yet other than it was just criticism uh, of the marketing department or marketing leader. And we don't know how or where that was said other than just it was on Slack. Now, the, the reports I've seen said that these were private discussions on Slack. And I don't know if that means that it was a private room where somebody was in there who shared that information with, with, with management, or if this was somehow the company monitoring private conversations. And I think there's actually a big difference between those two, because in Slack, you can set up monitoring. You know, some financial institutions are even starting to use Slack now just because there, there is sort of more robust record keeping and things like that. And I think, you know, which way that went kind of dictates where we should go from here also. Yeah, you're you're absolutely right. There's a lot of stuff that we don't know. Um, I mean, you know, a spokesperson for Netflix even came right, came out and said, quote, the depiction of the Slack messages in question being critical of marketing leadership is untrue, end quote. So on some level, they're even denying that that was the content of the messages, um, you know, they, they were prepared to say that the conversation was quote unquote, inconsistent with its core values. And that's sort of one of the things that people have latched onto here, Cam is, is Netflix's culture and, and its core values. And, you know, if you, if you go to its job website under the sort of the heading real values, it's called, there's a line that says, quote, you only say things about fellow employees that you say to their face. Um, you know, and I think this is sort of a really, really interesting approach to corporate culture. And it resonated with me because this is exactly the approach that I take when advising employees, you know, the, the idea that if you're writing an email or an instant message about your boss or a coworker, and you wouldn't be prepared to write the same verbatim text if they were sitting right next to you as you wrote it, then you probably shouldn't be sending it over any company-related network. Yeah, and this, I, I really think this applies to almost everybody because complaining about your boss or leadership is the most common thing out there, right? I mean, this is not a one-off by any stretch. I think probably everyone listening to the show has complained at some point about their boss or their company or the direction that they're going or whatever it might be. So this is common, but but it's a good reminder to just be mindful of this. I don't think criticism is going to go away, and I don't think people are saying don't criticize your bosses. But you know, do a proper risk assessment before you open your mouth, I think is, is really the, the, the lesson here. 
if you're on a company network, and, and you know what, you and I have seen this at companies I've worked at where there might be private chats where people complain about somebody senior. And, you know, I understand they, they think it's safe because you can see who's in that room, but it's just still too risky. You don't know for sure that everyone in that room is keeping it within that room. You don't know what your company's using to monitor these conversations. And same with email. You know, email for sure is is stored and kept for record-keeping purposes. It's not that, you know, bosses want to read people's personal email generally, but if there's some sort of a case that comes up or something down the road, you may have to go back for legal reasons to, to check that material and you'd come across it. So, yeah, just be careful. I mean, this is some common sense here, but just be careful if you, you know, where, where you say these things. Well, yeah, right? I mean, data is forever, it does not go away. So, you know, even if nothing comes of sort of critical comments that you might make over a company network today, this week, this month, this year, who knows? There may be reason to look into those communications years down the road and this stuff comes to light. I mean, just don't just don't do it. Right. I mean, it's simple um, or you would think it's simple. And yet this stuff, this stuff continues to happen. But the idea that you have some sort of reasonable expectation of privacy if you're sending Slack messages or Teams messages or whatever, you know, whatever it is that the, uh, that, that your particular employer relies on, it's not safe. Just, just don't do it. But, you know, Cam, I was sort of curious to get your take from, from a PR perspective. I mean, what do you do as a company in a situation like this where you're, you know, you're firing three marketing execs, you know, what, what approach do you take or should you take from as an employer in terms of sort of conveying that message publicly, particularly when you're like a high profile company like Netflix. Yeah, I was just actually going to mention this because I think this I want to stop short of saying that this was mishandled publicly because I can't say that for sure. But I, I have questions based on the way it was handled, because there's still so much here that we don't know. Right. And, you know, Netflix talks a lot about transparency, and I know these are HR issues ultimately, and usually companies won't go into too much detail on, on stuff like that publicly. But at the same time, there's a lot of questions here. Like, there are people that can look at this and say, you know, this, this company is too activist or too woke or, you know, in the fact that they let three people go because of criticism. Like there are some that will see that as an extreme reaction, depending on what was said, right? Like it's, it's hard for us to know if it was extreme or not, because we don't know what the criticism was or what the context and the circumstances were around that. So I, I feel like Netflix needs to provide a little bit more information here. And they're not, they have not done it. And they've had just a spokesperson, uh, you know, um, just talk about transparency uh, and values, which is fine. But I think when, when you leave a lot of the information in the dark, it just leads to speculation. And I think that is damaging. So, so that's the reason to share a bit more is right now it's kind of a blank canvas where people can project their own feelings onto it. Uh, and that's never good for a company, I think. Yeah. Well, and you know, and we haven't even touched on one of the other issues that comes up oddly sort of in, in the, the article. And, um, and again, it's difficult to sort of know what was said and what wasn't said, but that, you know, Miss St. John is a black woman and that she's the first black executive, senior executive to be hired by, um, to be hired by Netflix. And Netflix made a point of explaining that 
the comments that were made by these marketing executives that were let go were not racial or discriminatory in any way. And yet they they took the time to sort of point that out, which is kind of an interesting perspective or approach to take. Don't don't you think, oh, what was your take on that? Yeah, I think that is strange because, um, I mean, ultimately we're trying to get to a world, I think, where, you know, skin color doesn't matter. And our understanding here is that, yeah, the, there was not any sort of racial component to these or discriminatory component to these remarks. So it's odd then for Netflix to raise it. It kind of leads to questions there too. And, you know, I've seen this even in some of the coverage about it where they don't, you know, quote Netflix, but do point out that there was nothing racist or disparaging. I'm thinking of a New York Post article on this. So that's a, a weird decision to me as, as well. So, I mean, that's why I have questions about how Netflix handled it. Again, we don't know what was said. We don't know how it was received or who saw it. We don't know how the management got the material uh, and the complaints that were written into Slack. But we do know there's no racial component. People theoretically didn't assume that there was to begin with. So it's kind of confusing to me. This It just seems like something's missing here. And it seems like there's something that Netflix really is uncomfortable maybe about coming out here because it just it's a it's a little bit odd. Yeah, exactly. It's definitely, it's definitely odd. Um, definitely an odd approach. I mean, who knows, maybe, maybe they'll provide further clarification at some point in the future. I mean, the one thing that is crystal clear here, though, Cam, that we can take away from it is just don't write this stuff on your company yeah. networks. Yeah, it's funny. I get into these discussions with people from time to time because previously you would have a paper record of something, you know, then we had discs and CD, CD-ROMs and things like that of data. And actually that data stored that way does still deteriorate, right? Especially on paper. I mean, it does eventually go away unless it's very carefully archived. Um, but but data, digital data this way, bits, it does go forever. Like you say, I mean, this is stored... You know, it can be on a hard drive and you could have terabytes and terabytes of data and you can just copy it to a new one very easily. You can go back and check it very easily. Um, there's no shelf life to that. And so I, and I think people need to think about this, not just in the context of their jobs, but also just online in general. I tell people all the time, like when you're searching Google, clear your search results, go into your Google settings and clear it from time to time. Like everything you've ever searched is stored. Every email you've received is stored if you're using Gmail. If you leave a post on Reddit, it's going to be there forever. Just something to really keep in mind, um, you know, before you say something that, that you may regret at some point down the line. Show your support to the PR and Law Podcast by making a one-time donation or setting up a subscription with us on Patreon. Every little bit helps us keep the lights on and bring the show to you each week. If you'd like to chip in, please visit PRNLawPodcast.com. That's PRNLawPodcast.com. Click support the show. Thanks for helping us out. So this week, Ewan, I had to, I guess it was last week, um, I had to make sure that one of the executives in my company was prepared to do a media interview. Uh, and this is, you know, something that that PR people have to do quite regularly. And I wanted to kind of go into this a little bit. I'm not going to go into the specifics of my my own case, because obviously that that that's sort of confidential to my current workplace. But I do want to go through some of the procedures because people have asked me about this a little bit, like what goes into this kind of thing? 
and then after that, I've got a couple of things also to mention you and around words that people should avoid using, which I think is quite, quite interesting and also somewhat funny. Um, but, but first off, like, and I, I don't know how much you're aware of this, Ewan, but even going back to my, my days in, in the Canadian government or in the BC government in Canada, um, we had these things called issue scans. And, you know, it was, if any, any politician, and I worked in the, in, for the premier's office and I worked in the ministry of transportation, if, if the premier or, or, or the minister of transportation were to go on a radio show, let's say, you would prepare an issue scan. And in the issue scan, you would go back through that host or that reporter's kind of archive of material and find out, you know, what they have said, what their opinions are on multiple topics. And based on that, what, you know, we think they're going to ask of the politician and this works the same in the private sector. So, I mean, we do these all the time and there's a lot of work that goes into them, but they're actually extremely helpful um, to your executive. And so I think a couple of a couple of key points here. So uh, number one, you absolutely want to go back and take a look at that reporter's work. So, you know, in our case, we went back, you know, one, two years in that reporter's track record to see what they had written about, what are the key points, what are the key subject areas. And then you would distill their opinions, you know, into a document. And then you would do the, the Q&A. And so the communications person should think of themselves as a reporter. List out the questions that you think the reporter is going to ask your executive. And don't hide, don't be shy if there's awkward or embarrassing questions or ones that are sensitive internally. If asked, you have to put them all in this document because they may be asked. You know, oftentimes communications people don't want to be offensive or don't want to point out something that is clearly uncomfortable for their executives. But if the reporter does it and they're not prepared, it's much worse. So this all goes into a document and you can call this, you know, an issue scan. If you like, we use media brief. And the goal is that whatever executive is going to speak to the media, you want to hand them one document. And if they read that one document, they are ready for the interview. And that's the purpose, even if they're coming from a standing start, as in they're a new executive or, you know, it's on a subject area that maybe they're not familiar with. This one document should bring them entirely up to date and make sure they're ready to do that interview. So these things are critical to put together. Cam, how do you decide how far back you go? Like, I know you said, you know, one to two years. I mean, is that, is that sort of, is there like a typical threshold there? I mean, if you're dealing with sort of like a veteran reporter where you've, you've you could have a sample size going back five, 10 years on a particular issue. I mean, how do you, how do you sort of decide that timeline? So it kind of depends on the sort of media that you're talking to. So, you know, if it's a daily radio host and there's not a lot of them anymore, um, you know, oftentimes they're on the radio for two or three hours a day. And so you may not need to go back two years in that case. There's just so much material. In our case, we we went back one year. And you also want to look at your sector, right? So, you know, if there's been developments in the sector that you're you're working in, the reporter may ask, maybe you have to go beyond one year. But I think it's an assessment that you have to make because, again, specifically in my case, we had one hour. It was a one hour interview, right? So you think that's quite a bit of time. So you go through the first few months of material and say, okay, these are recurring themes that are almost certainly going to be brought up. But then there's also a lot of time for this interview. And so if the reporter brings up all of these themes, that will take 20, 25 minutes 
And so there's a lot more time here. So we do have to go back further. We do have to dig in a bit more uh, and just make sure that we cover off kind of the amount of material that may be brought up in this session because it's it's quite long. Now, a lot of times interviews are not an hour long. I mean, that's that's a, a certain circumstance that makes it more difficult. Usually they're just 5, 10, 15 minutes. Um, so these can be a little bit shorter. But the main thing is to make sure that they're just not surprised with anything. If, if the reporter asks something that you know, the executive was not briefed on, that reflects very poorly on the comm staff. Okay, that makes that makes sense. It's kind of a personal challenge for me also to think around an issue because it is kind of the comms person dueling with the reporter in some ways, right? Like you want to anticipate everything that they're going to think about, everything that they want to ask about. And then you want to come up with answers for those things and, you know, put them all down. And that requires some work usually. I mean, oftentimes you've got to reach into other, other departments internally uh, to find some assistance with that. But, you know, when the document is done, it can be a, a really useful piece of work, you know, for fending off these sorts of things. So, Absolutely. Do them. Make sure you do them well if you have to do them for your executive. Now, the second one, anyone, uh, I came across this article last week, and it's on terms to avoid using to not sound pretentious. <laughs> oh, this is going to be fun. I went through this and I thought, these are, this, this is so true. A lot of these. And so actually in the list, there's 24. I don't know if we'll have time to go through all of them, but let me fire a couple of these at you and you can tell me what you think. The first one, and this is an example, 3 a.m. in the morning. Now I have to tell you, when I saw this, I, like this has driven me crazy for years. Yeah, you, yo, I know. We, we've talked about this yep. one many times, you and I. I hear this all the time on TV, on, on podcast, like, all the time. I can't believe it drives me insane. Yes, if you say three in the morning or three a.m., both of them mean in the morning. You do not need to say both. It's not three a.m. in the morning. And you know, there's a there's a similar one to this, which also drives me crazy, which is in traffic reports. If you say there's an accident westbound in a lane, a lot of people say there's a traffic accident going westbound, which also drives me crazy because westbound means you're moving towards the west. You can drop the going. And that both of these are kind of the same in that they're redundant. They're very common and they're redundant and completely unnecessary. <laughs> That's pretty good. I'm thinking of, you know, that that Orwell writing tip cam, you know, his rules of writing that shows up in the economist rules of use fewer words whenever yeah. possible. That's a fundamental rule of writing. You know what? I'm glad you brought that up, actually, Ewan, because um, a lot of people don't know that. I feel especially new people in the industry. So. You want to use as few words as you can when you're writing something in comms, for sure. You and I think you and I have come across people who write and try to use some bigger words to kind of sound really intelligent or make things more complicated than they need to be uh, because there's a perception that this is how grown-ups write or this is how the professional set writes. It's not, a, not at all. Um, you, you want things to be very clear. And oftentimes that means foregoing those those big words because your main purpose is to be understood absolutely you see the same you know in, in in legal writing it's it's can be really frustrating as well but the same rules apply like we don't need to see say forthwith therefore there too um just 
bright and simple, plain language. I think, you know, it, it, and I think this is, a, this is a product of the education system as well, where, you know, a little bit of knowledge can be sort of a, a dangerous thing, right? Where you're working in an academic context where you feel compelled <laughs> to try and demonstrate an impressive vocabulary, but it's really contrary and runs contrary to what you should do and what your instincts should be in a professional context. Absolutely. And this goes back to like, why, why are we doing this? And this comes up a lot, actually, where, you know, if someone's doing a press release and they've put big words in there and I may try and pull out those words and they'll say, yeah, but these, you know, this, this is just how it's referred to or something along those lines. I'll say, why are we putting out the press release? It's to get media attention. Okay. So if it's to get media attention, why are we making it more complicated? Like, Really, you have to sit back and say, why are we actually even doing this whole exercise? And remember why, because I do think, especially a lot of young people in comms, they'll think, okay, the goal is to issue the press release. But actually, the goal is to get media coverage. They're different. I mean, issuing a press release is easy. But if you're going to issue a press release and nobody picks it up, you've just wasted your time. So, I mean, that's something I think needs to be reiterated often. Um, yeah, that's another good one, too. Second one, Ewan absolutely essential this one <laughs> this one i think i say sometimes <laughs> yeah uh yeah absolutely essential means absolutely necessary obviously which means necessary and essential are kind of the same thing anyway no need for the absolutely i think is the is the is the point there third one actual fact uh same i think i say this one too though uh, I, I have to, I'm going to have to cut that one out of my, out of my vocabulary. Another one, this one drives me crazy for sure. At this point in time or at the present point in time, just say now it's a lot shorter. <laughs> uh, this is a, this is a good example of what we were talking about. Like if you write this, you're trying to make it more formal and it doesn't, it doesn't work. Just, just say now or name the time depreciate in value. I think this is a good one. I think I have probably used this as well, but depreciate does mean that, right? Uh, eliminate completely or eliminate entirely. That's another good one. Um, combine together, join together. Oh, that is a good one. Yeah. Can I throw one in, Cam? Yeah, go for it. Um, this is this is one that I I hear and spoken. It, 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 that or spoken that just drives me bonkers. I don't know how this became a, a thing, but putting the word super uh -huh. in front of anything, super good, super great. It's a super issue, super problem, super. I, I don't know where it came from, why it's lingering. Um, I hear it everywhere. I hear it in podcasts. I hear it in news reports. Um, I hear it just in people commonly discussing having conversations about random stuff putting super in front of any just don't there's no point there's it doesn't serve a purpose it's a redundant word just it's good so it's fantastic i'm gonna doesn't have to be super good or super fantastic yeah you and i'm gonna have to come clean on on this one i remember when you know steve jobs used to do his big presentations and there were books out and there were all kinds of lessons about how to present like steve jobs and how to captivate an audience like steve jobs and when I saw the first Steve Jobs presentation, I was really underwhelmed. 
I actually didn't think it was very good at all. And I think one of the reasons I felt that way is he did use a lot of those plain terms. Like he would say, this is amazing, or this is amazingly great or whatever, you know, whatever he used to say all the time. And it, it wasn't original and he used the same terms over and over and over again. And I feel like when, when people put super in front of something, it kind of comes from that origin somewhere, that sort of fake enthusiasm, simple, you know, not much creativity, because I do see the same thing and hear the same thing a lot. It just sounds lazy to me. Actually, that's exactly what it is. It's just, it's kind of lazy anyway. I, I, I found it sort of filtering in, in professional context and really should just nip that one in the bud. Just don't, don't say it. Um, but funny enough, Cam, while, since we've been talking here, I managed to find the style guide for the economist okay. that includes George Orwell's six elementary rules of writing. Excellent. I'm going to quickly read them because I think they're fantastic and you should, you know, listeners, literally write these down or find them online, print it off and stick them next to your monitor and keep them in mind because they're fantastic. So rule number one, never use a metaphor, simile or other figure of speech, which are you, which you are used to seeing in print. Number two, never use a long word where a short one will do. Number three, if it is possible to cut out a word, always cut it out. Number four, Never use the passive where you can use the active. Number five, never use a foreign phrase, a scientific word, or a jargon word if you can think of an everyday English equivalent. And number six, break any of these rules sooner than say anything outright barbarous. <laughs> Just fantastic. You know what? Anyway, there, there they are. And that number five there about foreign term or scientific term, I think, it said, um, yeah, this is a common one, I think, for communications people, because oftentimes you have your own jargon or your own terms within your own industry. Right. And so it's common to people inside the company, but not common outside the company. Um, and so if you're going to use those terms, and I do think sometimes you have to define them, don't assume that everybody knows what they are. The first time you use it, put a comma after it, and then explain exactly and clearly and simply what that term means so people can follow along. You'd be amazed how often that doesn't happen. Anyway, you and I'll put a link into the show notes for the full list because there are some good ones in here and some common ones. Exact same. This is one I remember my dad used to always point out. If it's the same, then it is the same. There's no partially the same unless you say partially the same. <laughs> Um, Sorry, can I can I just jump in and use this as an opportunity to share another pearl of wisdom that I remember of your of your dad <laughs> many many years ago? You mean he has pearls of wisdom? But go ahead. <laughs> this one this one I st has stuck with me, completely unrelated to what we're talking about. Sorry, listeners, <laughs> it's our show. Deal with it. Um, he used to say, "If you're looking for something and you can't find it, look somewhere else." <laughs> That's right, and. And I say that because the amount of times I've looked for something somewhere and then I've gone back to that same place to look for it again. And I hear your dad's voice in my head saying, look somewhere else. You've you know. already looked here. It's like, all oh, right. Yeah. Okay. You know, it's, Thanks, it's funny bringing that up because I do think of that a lot, too. Like if I'm looking for my keys or something, I mean, I'm going to go into the home office, look around. I'm going to go you know, to the front entryway and I can't find it. I will often research the same places. Right. Like you don't know where to go. But yeah, that 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 pearl of wisdom pops into my head, too. in those in those moments. 
Um, anyway, a couple of others. Favorable approval. Feel badly. General consensus of opinion. It's <laughs> bad. In, <laughs> it's really bad. In close proximity. I think that one is used a lot, but you can just say close to, right? Uh, in the final analysis, just say finally. Uh, anyway, there's a, there's a whole list. And actually, I think these are, are quite... Um, they're quite accurate. I think these terms do pop up a lot and they oftentimes don't need to. And I think uh, what, what Ewan mentioned is very true. Use as few words as you can to make your point and uh, keep things simple. Wait a minute, wait a minute. Check this out. Whoa, hey, check this out. No, no, wait, wait. Oh, check it out, check it out. I want you to check this out. On the PR in Law podcast. All right, what do you got, Ewan? Well, Cam, I'm sticking with Hollywood. <laughs> don't, don't know what that's about, but we, I know we talked about Netflix earlier. Um, I read a lot of really interesting articles this week about the, uh, the release of Black Widow. And of course, this was a Disney production through Marvel Studios, which Disney owns. And they revealed their premium VOD, the video on demand numbers. And this is the first time this has been done until mm -hmm. now. No traditional studio has publicly shared the viewership numbers for films that have debuted simultaneously in theaters and at home. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, this is just a, I, I just find this sort of fascinating in terms of where, where the future of film ultimately goes. So in, in the figures that were released, Black Widow debuted to $218.8 million. But of that $218.8 million, $60 million of it came from their Disney Plus premiere access, which they estimate to be from a, about 2 million households. Now, to sort of put that, what, you know, what does that mean? Well, for, for those individuals who subscribe to Disney Plus, they'll probably know exactly what it means. You pay your monthly subscription fee to Disney Plus, but this is above and beyond that. So if you want to rent, you know, a copy of Black Widow to watch while it's playing in the theaters simultaneously, you're going to pay an additional fee. Um, I think in Canada, it's about 25 bucks. I'm not sure exactly what it is in the States, probably like 1999 or something better, but you have to pay a fee above and beyond the monthly subscription fee to watch it in your home. And apparently cam a number of people did because Disney generated 60 million bucks from this. So it sort of begs the question, where do we go from here? I mean, we know theaters are starting to reopen, um, Wall Street has sort of said that this isn't a sustainable market because it ultimately cannibalizes the, the theater market. But what, what I think is the, the really sort of fascinating financial variable here is that, of course, Disney owns Disney Plus. So when they stream one of their films at 25 bucks a pop, they take 100% of those profits as opposed to, say, 50% because they have to split tickets with, you know, Cineplex or you know, whoever the, the theater company is that's ultimately sharing it. Anyway, I thought it was just a really kind of interesting story. Yeah, I've been following this stuff quite, quite closely because I do find it fascinating how just technology is sort of upending all of these industries. In fact, actually, first of all, if people are interested in this kind of subject area, I recommend two podcasts. One is called Recode Media. The other is called Digiday. And both really look at the media industry and deal with movies, music, uh, streaming, television, uh, 
uh, even newspapers and, and news portals, things like that. Um, both very, very good podcasts. So the curious thing for me here is just that it's an extra cost on, on Disney Plus, because I think over the last year and throughout the pandemic, we've seen streaming services, HBO, Apple, Netflix, release movies, first run movies onto their streaming platforms. And we actually don't really know the numbers on that, except that analysts think it's a far cry from replacing the the box office totals because you're you're already paying nine ninety nine or fourteen ninety nine to these services. You know, a movie like Tenet drops, and you can watch it at no extra charge if you're already a customer. That I don't think is is going to work. And then what you're talking about is sort of a separate model where you still charge extra for the movie. And I think that's interesting because for a few reasons. One is I don't know if customers are going to feel that great about that. If they're already paying $14.99 to Disney Plus and now Disney Plus wants them to pay another $25 to watch a movie, I think that has to happen because it doesn't work any other way. Um, but I wonder what what sort of the reception will be if this is if this is the norm. And then, you know, you mentioned they get 100 percent of of the receipts, basically, you know, you know, when people are watching it on Disney Plus and paying for it through that platform because of the sort of vertical integration. I still have serious doubts that that will replace box office revenue. And so I, it's interesting watching the experiments around this to see what works and what doesn't work. And I think it will be something along these lines that works, where if you want to watch a first run movie as soon as it's released without going to the theater, you're probably going to have to pay a premium, even if you already subscribe to the streaming services. And we'll see how that goes. And I know there's been some predictions out there that like cinemas won't disappear like there are people who really enjoy going out to watch a movie for all of the things that are part of that experience grabbing some you know popcorn or whatever at the little shop or some twizzlers or whatever and you know going in and and, and watching that film on a, on a big screen and so that'll that'll still be there but i think if if you can watch these movies from home and you and you and i talked about you know if you've got a family of four paying 25 bucks on disney plus to watch the movie is a lot more reasonable than than four people buying tickets to go see a movie i think this is probably going to going to spread and i think theaters might just become just more boutique right like they're going to serve a a particular film crowd but i think you might see sort of the 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 retail cinemas not disappear but i think they'll probably be fewer of them going forward. Yeah, I mean, I find the cannibalization argument a really interesting one because there has to be a marketplace out there for couples or families who, you know, we talked about the family four who it's, you know, from a, a value dollar and cents proposition, it's cheaper to just watch it on your home, which could be, you know, your 65, 70 inch television or projection screen, all of which are becoming more and more affordable nowadays and, and you know, being removed from sort of the luxury items that they once were versus, you know, those individuals who just don't want to have to go and and get to a theater you know maybe they don't have to drive if uh you know if if they live in a, a rural rural environment and it's just easier and more convenient um to just throw it on their television in the comfort of their home where they can wear you know their cozy sweatpants and sweatshirts and curl up on their comfy couch the blanket like i you know i i, I really struggle <laughs> to believe that there isn't a market that will continue to watch 
these films at home and that it could in inevitably be an entirely new revenue stream of people who wouldn't otherwise go to the theater that are now paying premiums for, for first run movies because they can watch them at home. Right. Yeah. There's just no evidence of that. I mean, based on sort of what we saw last year, there's just not, I mean, it's not making up for the difference because people aren't willing to spend the same amount, first of all. But but also like these streaming services are packed with content, right? And and even when you're charging a premium, these movies often go to the streaming service a few months later without the premium. And so people wait for that. I think there's yeah. a real question just on 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 how this is going to work out. And and I you talk about projectors and large screen TVs, you're right. I mean, we moved to a projector in, you know, my own home over the last several months and it's a 120-inch 4K you know, uh, HDR projector and it's fabulous for watching movies. I mean, it's changed the entire experience and it's got surround sound with it. And it feels like we're in a movie theater, you know, when the lights go down and, and we watch something on there. So for sure, I don't think I need to go to a theater again. I mean, I've never been a big movie watcher to begin with, but I'm okay. <laughs> I'm okay watching from here personally. I just know that there are some people out there who really do enjoy movies, sort of like Quentin Tarantino, who you recommended last week, Ewan, and I just listened to his uh, his his interview on on WTF with Mark Maron. People oh, like yeah, him what did you think? that love movies. Um, actually, your takeaway that you talked about last week was about sort of a brooding male actor, and I, I feel like they were talking a little bit more about just men who had gone to war and done and seen awful things and had dealt with post-traumatic stress and alcoholism and how those guys aren't around anymore. I think that's more of a function of history, do you think? I, I didn't catch the the dark brooding part. Well, maybe um, not so much that maybe no, you know, maybe not so much the dark brooding part, but definitely like a heart, a type of hard man. And again, when I close my eyes and I think of who that character, that actor is that they're describing, I see Charles Bronson, right? That's who I see. And he, his name comes up um, like a hard, hard man, um, a tough man, a fit guy who had seen things and been through stuff <laughs> that when you see him in sort of death wish or, you know, uh, the magnificent seven or some of his earlier films, you know, that some of the Sergio Leone films that he's in once upon a time in the West, you know, this wasn't a guy who is strong because he worked out at the gym because there was no gyms. This was a guy who was strong because, you know, he chopped wood with an axe and had been involved in some stuff. And that 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 type of man and is no in longer the... really part of the cinema anymore in the way that it, it, he just dominated cinema in, say, the 60s and 70s. But he fought in the war. Right. I mean, like I, I did get this. Yeah, hard, sure, Yeah. But I think it, I didn't feel like they were lamenting that these men don't exist anymore and they should exist. And it was more these men don't exist anymore because we we don't have world wars and various other things that these right, guys had right. to go through. Anyway, I got a little bit of a different takeaway from it. Um, not that they wanted this kind of thing to come back. Just that in those days, life was hard and these guys were shaped by that. And it's a lot different now. Yeah, I think that's fair. I wouldn't not, disagree Not as that. much trauma. But anyway, all good. Um, this week, you and I'm going to recommend something that has transfixed me, actually, over the past several weeks. I started, I put this on my sort of home office television a few weeks ago, just while I was working. And I ended up really, really enjoying it. It's called Hip Hop Evolution. It's on Netflix. It was actually originally created in 2016 by a Canadian rapper, and it was broadcast on CBC. Netflix picked it up. It's a four-season documentary, basically, uh, a very detailed evolution of hip-hop going back to the early 70s. 
and what sort of some of the, the disco music was happening at the time and what led to the very first hip hop party, which is in 1976, I believe. They've got it down to an exact date and place. And um, it's a fascinating interview. I mean, the, the, the host, this Canadian rapper, he actually interviews, I mean, just a huge cross-section of, of rappers and artists and producers to do this documentary. And um, I think it's really, really well done. It goes through everybody, you know, from before Run DMC, through Nas, through through Ice-T and NWA and on and on. And um, it's great. It's, it's something good to just kind of watch on. It's a light, lighthearted watch, but also very interesting and some great music in there, too. Yeah, I can totally vouch for this. I've, I've bombed through a bunch of those episodes as well. And it, the uh, the Canadian artist, the host, his name's Shad. It, it, it's really cool to see him basically just going on and doing all kinds of awesome work he's a great interviewer and he really he sort of he knows when to sort of step back like any great interviewer does and let the interviewee do the talking which is which is fantastic anyway definitely check it out it's cool that it's on netflix i've i've really enjoyed it actually i would like you know similar documentary about other genres or other other times in history because i think it, it was it was genuinely really really interesting and i learned a ton uh as well and come across a bunch of great music i didn't know about either so Good times. Good times, Ewan. What else you want to say, dog, before uh, this one goes in the books? I don't know. I think we should roll out. It feels like we, we've uh, we've been we've covered a lot of ground. I know yeah. we, we we say that often. We've covered a lot of ground. I feel like we actually did cover a lot of ground this weekend. We did. Indeed, we did. So thank you for, for joining us for this rambling session. Don't miss a show. Please subscribe in your podcast app of choice or to our YouTube and SoundCloud channels. And you can follow us on social as well. Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and our newsletter. Sign up for that, please, if you have not done so already. You can find it at prlawpodcast.club. So for you and Christy, this is Cam McMurchie. Light it up. This has been the PR and Law Podcast with Cam McMurchie and you and Christy. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend or leave a review. You can also join us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook by following our account at PR Law Podcast. That's all one word, P-R-L-A-W Podcast. Thanks for your support.